Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLean Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Emil Bovi. Emil, thank you for joining this morning. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, Emil, my question to you is, you know, how does a guy growing up in Western New York end up becoming an assistant United States attorney specializing in cyber risk? So it really started out for me with my first job out of college, which was in the same office where I later served as a federal prosecutor, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And, and back then in uh, 2003, I started out as a paralegal helping other prosecutors do the job. Um, and when I first got to the, the office, that was my first time living in Manhattan. Um, and I really didn't understand what federal prosecutors did. And I spent about two years there helping those guys do the job, getting a sense of what the, the trial environment was like. Um, and after that, there was really no question in my mind that that's something that I wanted to be a part of my career as a lawyer, being, being a federal prosecutor. And so from that point on, about 2005, when I started law school, I was really focused on going back to, to be an AUSA in the Southern District of New York and tried to, to continue to develop relationships with mentors who could help me get back to that spot. The cyber piece really came in after I started my work as a prosecutor, and that was in 2012. Um, and I was drawn immediately when I got to the, to the office in that role to national security work. And there was one unit in the office that, that focused almost exclusively on, on that category of cases. Um, it was called the Terrorism and International Narcotics Unit at the time, and it's now been switched over and re is referred to as the National Security Unit um, for that office. And so in that, off in that unit, um, where I spent about seven years from um, 2014 up until I finished at the end of last year, December 2021, we focused on three categories of cases, and, and there were cyber angles really in all of them. Um, one part of the work of the unit involved crisis response. And so, you know, there would be times where we were responding to terrorism attacks all over the world, sometimes right in New York City. Um, I was actually at the, the FBI's office in Chelsea in Manhattan when Ahmad Khan Rahimi detonated a bomb in, in the Chelsea neighborhood in 2016. And so, the, you know, in that part of the work, you get exposed to crisis and how people work together to respond to that. And that sort of, in, especially since I made the transition to private practice, it immediately translates into what a client is experiencing um, when they have a cyber, a cyber incident. Back to the national security work, another thing that we we're very focused on was sovereign threats from some of the, the main enemies of the United States, um, Russia, China, and Iran. And so that, that work, which was, was typically done in a, a counterintelligence format, working with the FBI, could take on a, a lot of different um, types and, and, and I took on different roles. Sometimes 
um, in counterintelligence cases where the focus was on a, a criminal prosecution, I would help with those investigations and, and see them forward into to criminal cases and ultimately trials. Other times we would try and use criminal tools like search warrants and subpoenas to support more classified counterintelligence missions, going back and forth with these main adversaries, again, Russia, China, and Iran. Um, one of the cases I, I worked on in this category sort of um, I was brought back to the memory by the, the recent news of the new sanctions against Russia that were announced over the last week or so following the invasion of the Ukraine. One of the banks that the Treasury Department sanctioned was VEB, which is a Russian state-owned uh, financial institution. Early on in my time as a, as a national security prosecutor, I worked on a, a case against a, a Russian intelligence officer named Evgeny Biryakov. Um, Biryakov was in the United States under the non-official cover as an employee of VEB. So this is all, all the way back in 2014, even earlier. Um, Biryakov was arrested in 2015. Russia was using VEB in connection with intelligence activities here in the homeland. One of the neatest parts about that case, and it's, and it's less a cyber angle, but more about sort of just how ingenious some of the agents that I was able to work with can be and how smart they can be involves how we actually ultimately got to Biryakov and got in a position where we had unclassified evidence that we could use to prosecute him. Biryakov was um, interacting with an undercover officer who was working with the FBI and that was sort of a main source of the evidence in that case. Um, and so the, the undercover who was a, a again, just a really, really smart FBI agent. You record some of the communications, um, but Biryakov was guarded. He was smart and, and sophisticated. He, he was a spy. Um, and so in order to sort of get behind the curtain and, and figure out what Biryakov was actually doing when he left meetings with the undercover and went back into um, more secure um, Russian spaces to talk to um, other spies, other intelligence officers, the undercover figured out a way to, to take just a normal binder that we would use in our job every day and insert a, a microphone covertly in the, the spine of the binder. So you, you open it up and there's that, that spine in the middle. Put a microphone in, in there that had a recording capacity of say 24 or 48 hours. It wasn't infinite because the battery life would die and there was some, some, some technology and some development involved there. And basically hand that binder to Biryakov um, Biryakov took it back into a secure Russian facility with the mic on, and the mic then recorded him discussing um, his interactions with the undercover and his activities on behalf of Russia with other intelligence officers. And so that, that was a case early on in my time where I saw both from a, a national security angle and also a technology angle, um, how exciting the, the work could be and where the FBI um, got to a, a really excellent outcome, disrupting a, a Russian intelligence officer who was operating in the homeland um, by thinking creatively. And so that, that was another big part of the work was thinking about how to combat sort of foreign sovereign threats, whether that was based on their activities in the United States or activities abroad that, that threatened US interests. And then ultimately I did get into work that had more direct uh, cyber angles. Um, both from an investigative perspective 
and then in terms of the sort of the substance of, of some of the cases themselves. Um, so on the investigative side, I, I think one of the most interesting cases I was involved in um, related to the prosecution of a, a guy named Paul LaRue. Um, there's a lot online about LaRue and, and, and people can read about it if they're interested. You know, he was at, at bottom um, a very, very smart, extremely evil human being um, targeted by the DEA in, in 2011 and 2012 based on uh, drug distribution that he was engaged in. But LaRue's background was really as a programmer. Um, he had worked as a contractor for uh, British authorities to envelop, to develop uh, disk encryption um, protocols. This was back in the early 2000s. And then he eventually drew on that experience to set up a, an illegal pharmaceutical website where he was selling opioids and other kinds of drugs um, by getting people basically fake prescriptions that they could take in to um, pharmacies locally. And in order to do that, he set up a system of rotating servers so that the, the data related to this website would always be hard for law enforcement to capture because it move constantly. And if he didn't check in with it um, at scheduled times, it, it could delete. And so the, the servers were operating all over the place and, and very, very hard to infiltrate. And so the DEA ultimately got onto LaRue through what I, I think of as sort of more old fashioned law enforcement techniques, kind of similar to Biryakov, uh, using an undercover, using a confidential source to record him talking about, um, about his drug trafficking activities. So they ultimately arrested LaRue in Liberia in September, 2012. And I wasn't there, but there's this scene that's been described to me a bunch of times that it's kind of out of a movie almost, where LaRue finally gets on this private jet that's about to take him um, back to the United States to be prosecuted. And he had resisted up to that point and tried to bribe Liberian officials so that he wouldn't be put on that plane. But he, when all else failed, he sat down on the plane, uh, looked across at the agents and, and said, basically, look, if you're interested in me, you must be interested in targeting nation states. And so from that, the rest of that flight um, from Liberia back to the United States, long flight back from Africa, he basically laid out all the technology that he was using um, for the servers, but also described other things that he was doing, including helping to develop a missile system for Iran, negotiating the purchase of a submarine um, from North Korea, working with the triads in Asia to uh, distribute heroin. Um, it was just, I, it was absolutely insane for those agents on the plane. And because LaRue decided to flip, to cooperate at that point in the case, it allowed the DEA to be in a position to sort of flip his technological expertise back on his network. And so when he got back to the US, he, he got a lawyer, but the case was kept under seal for a while to let him work covertly on, on behalf of the United States. And so he was able to access those servers that I mentioned, um, do that remotely and pull down data and evidence that related to other co-conspirators in the scheme. And he had also, you know, drawing on the, the encryption experience that I mentioned, set up a, a pretty complex series of encrypted email addresses that the main um, members of his team used. And that data was also stored on those servers. And so you could both 
download and he did download historical information, but at the same time was able to work proactively, send messages um, on behalf of the DEA, messages that the DEA directed him to send to target other people. And so for a, about almost a year, LaRue set up and set in motion um, a series of sting operations on behalf of the DEA that ultimately led to 12 convictions um, from based on conduct ranging from purchasing um, methamphetamine that was produced by the North Korean government, um, all the way to a, a conspiracy to murder a, a DEA agent. And so that was a time where you know, the agents were the main drivers in that, both in, in their creativity and in figuring out how to target LaRue and getting us in a situation um, where we could actually arrest somebody who's that powerful um, in Liberia. And then on the, the back end of the case, getting us in a position where they could think about using his technological expertise, using sort of his uh, defensive cyber strategy back against the, the same network that, that they were hoping that the agents were hoping to disrupt. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a, I think an impressive example of um, how tech savvy the DEA can be in the cyberspace and in sort of the, uh, the computer forensics space. And that's a case that led to, um, you know, both taking some really evil people off the street and they're, they're serving some serious jail time. Um, but you can imagine there's also national security upsides Absolutely. to um, seizing a laptop from a guy like LaRue, who was negotiating directly with Iranian officials, North Korean officials, um, had a, an extremely corrupt network in the Philippines where he and that website were based. And so it's, a, it's also an example of a time where the cyber angle led to both criminal upside and national security uh, benefits. And so those are some examples of, of the work that I got involved in um, during that seven years, the national security space. And it, it's certainly, even as I, I talk about it now, and you're thinking about arrests in Liberia, Russian intelligence officers, you know, covert binder mics, it's, it's, there were plenty of times where I felt a long way from home uh, in the Finger Lakes, but also very, very lucky and, and fortunate to be there. Sure, sure. It's, it's very interesting uh, uh, history and not only stories that you've been able to accomplish, but frankly, you know, uh, adversaries that you've been able to take down. So thank you not only for uh, uh, being on today's show, but also for everything you've done for our country. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I think that, you know, this is all teamwork for sure. And so there, there are so many people with me and all these things that I would never take credit for the, the outcomes in, in these cases. So, so tell me about uh, your new team. I, I know that you've recently joined uh, our folks over at CSG, Michelle Schapp and the privacy group over there. Um, how have you been able to translate some of your public sector experience into the private sector? So I've been at CSG since January of this year. And what I'm really looking to do in private practice is find places in the, the criminal defense and, and regulatory space where my national security experience can differentiate me a little bit and put me in a position to, to help clients navigate some of these complex issues. And at CSG, um, in our offices, both in, in New York and New Jersey, that's really translated into, into focusing my work in, in two practice areas. One is in our, our cyber and data security practice with Michelle Schapp. Um, and, and there, what I'm trying to do is, is supplement what is really her remarkable expertise 
in um, in this space. Um, particularly, I think where I can, can help and have tried to help so far is in responding to cyber incidents, help guiding clients um, through those crises based on the, the crisis management skills that I developed and drew on as a prosecutor. And also talking with those clients about sort of how to engage with law enforcement and, and the pros and cons of those engagements when they're, when they're dealing with uh, the incident and sort of in the, in the post-mortem after that. And I think one, one area in that type of work where Michelle and I um, have worked very well together is thinking about the balance between federal um, law enforcement and regulators in this space, so like the FBI and, and the, the Treasury Department come into play, and then also just the, the really complex uh, web of state regulators at this point when disclosure issues come up related to victims of these incidents. And then at times where the, the clients have customers, employees, um, or other related individuals abroad, that, that, net, that network, that web can, can go even further. And so Michelle and I work together to, to try and make sure that, that we're managing the different risks on, on all those angles. And so that, that's a, a big focus of my practice so far and, and the work that I hope to develop here for, for CSG clients. The other part that I think is, is um, nice and unique about CSG is that there's a, a very deep bench here of formal, former federal prosecutors, people who, who did this, a similar job um, to what I did. Uh, the C in, in CSG is, is Jeff Chiesa, who is an AUSA in the, in the District of New Jersey, as well as the Attorney General of New Jersey and, and a Senator. Um, and I think that you know, his leadership at the firm has led to sort of a real focus on both emphasizing uh, service in the, the private sector work that we do, but also um, valuing a record of service coming into, coming into the firm. And so we have a, a, a white collar defense and investigations group. Uh, it's, it's more than those seven people who are former AUSAs, but that's a big part of it. And what I'm trying to do there is, is find places where there are white collar crime issues um, and investigations that involve state actors or national security issues. And there's some overlap based on the things I was doing um, in the government before I joined CSG. And so that usually uh, will present itself in a few areas, OFAC sanctions or so economic sanctions, um, export controls by the Commerce Department. Um, recently, there's been more emphasis on the Foreign Agents Registration Act in, in Section 951. And so that's sort of that espionage and counterintelligence work that we talked a lot a bit about earlier. And then finally, foreign corruption. And so, you know, I mentioned LaRue's involvement in international drug trafficking. There was a bunch of my work that involved uh, focusing on distribution networks and the, and the political institutions that facilitate drug distributions network, judge, excuse me, drug distribution networks abroad. Um, not only in Africa, but also in, in South America. And so I was involved in a, a case that led to the indictment of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro um, in an investigation in Honduras um, that ultimately, after I left the office, led to the indictment of the of former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez. And so those are the areas on the white collar regulatory space that I'm trying to hit, OFAC sanctions, uh, export controls, foreign agent registration, and uh, foreign corruption. 
So, you know, you've mentioned sanctions a few times uh, throughout today's podcast. You know, the Treasury Department just announced a lot of sanctions against Russia since the invasion. Uh, how do you think that's going to impact the cyberspace, the sanctions against Russia? So two main themes uh, come to mind for me on that one. One is that there's a, a cyber component to the banks trying to comply with these sanctions to bo both U.S. financial institutions and really international institutions, taking a look at what OFAC is doing um, and, and identifying their exposure to these now sanctioned parties and sanctioned relationships and figuring out how to address that exposure, whether that's blocking assets in some instances um, or, or ending client relationships in others. And I, so that's one angle that, that I think um, I, I can only imagine the, the number of fire drills and, and late nights that bank executives uh, are putting in right now on that front. And I think there's a big cyber component to that because a lot of this is screening um, and, and going back through uh, electronic records and trying to figure out where the exposure is to these sanctions. The second theme that I, that I anticipate that I think is going to come up here is that you know, there are a few sort of understood mechanisms for any sanctioned party to uh, engage in, in sanctions evasion um, to access the, the international financial system and sometimes even the, the US financial system directly through correspondent accounts. Um, sanctioned parties are, are gonna need to, to take some new steps to do some innovation. And I think that one way that we're gonna see that is uh, Russia as a, as a sovereign and also just sanctioned Russian parties um, over there are going to push financial transactions and, and assets into the crypto space. Very much understood. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, perhaps uh, America doing offensive hacking. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments on that, if that might be a little too sensitive, um, but if you could share any thoughts, that would be great. So look, I didn't have, as a, as a prosecutor, I didn't have any role in uh, that type of, of uh, operation or even planning that so that there's no inside baseball um, coming from me on this one. But there, there's no question that, that, you know, what we're looking at right now is sort of a, a back and forth um, between the, the Russian government um, and the US and its allies. And, and I think there's a real theme of sort of a united front of allies that emerged over the weekend that, that's pretty impressive. Um, sort of trading volleys with uh, cyber intrusions. And, and um, you know, a lot of, I think the risk on the, the US side and, and to clients who are more adversarial with Russia has sort of transitioned away from things that I think of as commercially focused hacking or uh, incidents of sort of uh, things like ransomware, uh, commercial email um, compromises, things like that. Towards, uh, you know, you're reading this weekend about wiping malware and, and denial of service attacks. And, um, you know, which to my mind is just a very different type of, of threat and risk um, faced by people standing up to, the, to this invasion. And, you know, as a citizen, you'd like to think that, that the U.S., I would like to think that the U.S. is um, preparing or perhaps has already deployed a, a proportional response um, to, to what we've seen uh, on the cyber front in, in Ukraine and uh, in that region. Okay. 
So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of trends kind of coming out of the DOD cyber enforcement. Do you want to talk about some of the, the trends that you've seen or you've been taking a notice out of? So I think that trend-wise, you know, you've seen the, the establishment of a, this national crypto enforcement team um, and DOJ recently announcing uh, Unyoung Choi to be the, the director of that team. You know, she's taking over that, that job in this complex time where I think Russia and Russian interests are likely to push um, into crypto. And so I, I think that sort of looking for places where that, that team can, can fit in and make criminal cases to support the, the, the effort and response to Russia is one theme that I think people will be looking at and, and you know, that can include on the, the sanctions evasion front, people who are not necessarily Russian actors. And so the clients have to be sensitive to, to sanctions compliance um, and to D DOJ's increased uh, criminal presence in that space. Um, I think, you know, staying with crypto, there's obviously um, an increased focus on the potential for regulation in that area. And I think that um, you know, we've seen OFAC sanction um, crypto service providers, um, some based in Russia, like SUEX, um, who are non-compliant with UX expectations for, for transparency and, and staying away from, from ransomware. And I would expect that both on the, the regulatory side, so the OFAC um, side, but also on the, the criminal side, uh, that the government will be looking at, pla at places to basically make examples, public examples of non-compliant actors who are not seeking to um, implement the, the sanctions that are intended to have this effect to, to choke back on uh, Russia's access to the, to the financial system. I think another theme that's been of interest to me is uh, sort of private sector collaboration with the government in connection with uh, some of these efforts. And I, I think that, that that theme and that trend has loomed large in, in what we've learned so far about the arrest and prosecution of Ilya Lichtenstein and uh, Heather Morgan uh, related to allegations that they laundered some of the uh, assets that were taken in the Bitfinex hack back in uh, 2016. And so there you have a situation with a victim that, that Bitfinex that suffered very real, uh, extensive financial harm and obviously had incentives uh, to try and help the government get to the bottom of that. And so in the press releases and in some of the public filings related um, to those recent arrests, you can see uh, sort of the outlines or, or shadows that private sector actors like Bitfinex actually contributed to the development of evidence in that case. And, and I think that that partnership is going to be important because the technological expertise that resides in the private sector um, that can sort of help government officials out as they're working to get up to speed. Um, another place that, that I've seen that recently is in a, a judicial opinion related to one of the search warrants in that case. Um, by a former federal prosecutor named Zia Faruqi, who's now a magistrate judge in DC, who I wrote a, a pretty thorough, uh, long, well-reasoned opinion about relying on both open source and fee-based uh, blockchain analyzers for things like clustering analysis um, and how 
those types of evidence, even though they come um, from the private sector, rather than necessarily a, a tool developed by the FBI itself or the IRS by itself, that those private sector tools can be reliable and that the government can rely on them um, to establish a basis for, for search warrants, to, to search physical premises or to search electronic accounts. And, and in that opinion, the judge basically drew an analogy um, between these uh, programs that do the clustering analysis from places like chain analysis and elliptic and TRM labs. From that, drew an analogy between that technology and confidential sources, human witnesses who report information to the government. And there's an interesting part of the opinion where the judge in substance concluded, look, you know, people as confidential informants uh, can make mistakes in their track records, um, can be questioned, and they, they, you have to look at that in terms of whether or not they're reliable and can be used as evidence to justify a, a search or some sort of other uh, intrusion on Fourth Amendment rights in connection with an investigation. On the other hand, these technologies have uh, repeatedly shown themselves to be reliable and trustworthy and to generate accurate results. And so that you know the judge's conclusion was basically that tech like this is equally, if not more so reliable than than the human witnesses that law enforcement typically relies on. And so I you know there's then a, a now a public opinion, that sort of authorizes and endorses law enforcement collaboration with the private sector and, and use of private sector tools in a sophisticated and developing space where government technology, especially on the law enforcement side, may not be quite as up to speed as where the, the more well-resourced private sector parties are. Um, endorsing that, and I, I think you'll see that going forward now is law enforcement feeling comfortable that they can work with some of these entities um, to develop evidence in their cases. So, Emil, we, we've talked about a tremendous amount of information, public to private, how you got into this space and really kind of future predictions. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't get a chance to ask you before I let you go? Look, I, I think, you know, we've talked about the threat of cyber attacks right now and how that's on the rise. And in particular, as Russia starts to feel the hurt of the, the sanctions that are, are to be imposed, including you know, sanctions on its central bank and denial of access to the, the SWIFT system. And I think that the, the last thing, maybe it's a good place to close, is to, to think about some of the key themes that, that clients should be aware of as they prepare um, to meet these cyber challenges um, and, and to address the risk of an incident like this. And so I, you know, these are, these are things that we're telling our clients right now. And I think there's a lot of this type of stuff in, uh, in open source as well, but it's, it's so, so important to get it right at this point um, in terms of incident response planning, even, even little things that I, I, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily think about like printing out hard copies of, uh, of your incident response plan so that it's available to you if, if systems are down making sure that you have a, a current list of usable vendors in response to an incident for things like the forensic investigation, ransomware negotiations, a network that can get you access to foreign counsel if you're gonna have those issues that I referenced earlier with foreign employees or foreign clients who need notification. And then speaking of notification, you know, making sure that you at least have an idea of who you would engage as in terms of crisis communications. 
as the incident unfolds. And so I think this is sort of a, a time to, to do a, a systems check as uh, you know, all signs point to increased activities, increased threats on these fronts. Um, and so I, I think that maybe that's the, the best place to close is uh, being vigilant on that front. So Emil, if uh, our, uh, our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Is it uh, phone, LinkedIn, email, Twitter? How can they reach you? Um, all of the above. I, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn under just my first and last name. Uh, my email is uh, listed on that and is also on the, the firm's website. And my phone is uh, 347-585-4806. Excellent. Well, Emil, thanks for taking the time to come on today's show and chat in cyber with us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it.